Hall of Fame will would truly be the, the highest individual honor I can have as a as a football player. Welcome to a celebration of Jacksonville Jaguars left tackle Tony Baselli's induction in the National Football League Hall of Fame. What makes it even more special for me is I want to represent this organization and this fan base because I know it's important to them as well. For them to care that much means a ton to me. Join Jaguars.com senior writer John Hosier as he sits down with the people who know Tony, both professionally and personally. CBS Sports senior writer Pete Prisco. Pete and I covered the Jaguars together from 95 to 2000. Uh, the reason that's pertinent, that spans pretty much all of Tony Baselli's career. And uh, Tony and Pete particularly have a relationship that goes back 22, 23 years now, which is unbelievable to me to say it's been that long. Uh, Pete, first of all, welcome, and I appreciate you doing this as always. Yeah, has it really been that long? <laughs> oh my God. It's been longer We're than old. that, actually. It's like 27 We're years. old, Osher. Yeah, it, it's a... Uh, well, it, and to start it off, I mean... It, uh, for fans who don't know, uh, Pete, the first story I got to ask you, Pete, and I know it well, but I love hearing you tell it. Before anybody in Jacksonville knew who uh, Tony Baselli was, outside of a few college football fans, uh, you figured out they were drafting him. And there's a story that goes where the Jaguars, I think we can reveal it after 27 years now, got you the tape to watch Tony and so that the TU could kind of prep fans for who this guy was, because it wasn't necessarily going to be a popular pick. This was not a quarterback. This was an offensive tackle. It was an off, not off the wall. Football people got it. But take me through that story, Pete. Well, it was, uh, you know, Tom Coughlin wanted to take Tony Baselli, and it wasn't, like you mentioned, it was not going to be a sexy pick. I mean, it just wasn't. It's a left tackle, and, and we know the value of the position, but when you're building a franchise, everybody thinks quarterback, quarterback, quarterback. And so Coughlin got me – a VHS tape, and I had that for a long time. I don't know what I did with it, but it was a VHS tape. That's how long ago it was, of Tony against Baylor. And Baylor had Scotty Lewis. It's relative because he was a good player. And it was and he was and he was one of those guys Tony just took to heart and dominated. I wrote the story saying, look, it looks like they're gonna pick this guy. This is why it makes sense. Da 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 da. And you gotta get the left tackle, the quarterback, they you know, they, they, they're they going to get one some other way. And by that time, they had already gotten Burline, right? And and yes. and uh, and then uh, Brunel came in, in the trade. So Yeah, Brunel came in the trade, I think, a couple of days before the draft. It, it, but Correct. It, it was still going to be Burline. So it, it's uh, there's so many great stories. We won't be able to get to them all in this time. But for you, Pete, um, you've covered the league a long time. We both have. You've got to know a lot of players. Uh, just from a personal point of view, because a lot of Jaguars fans know you and feel like they know the relationship between you and Tony. Um, for me, I know this is a special time, and you know this will be the last time we talk this positively about Tony, but I don't know that I'll cover another story quite like him. I, I flew out to Colorado when he was a rookie, uh, got to know his family, have seen the whole process of him getting there. I now call him a friend. I once called him an interview subject. How special is this for you to see him in? Oh, it's really special. And, and A, because I, I, I really, and like you, I consider him a friend. I admire him as a guy. I mean, he's a good person. And, and as good a person, as good a player as he was, he was a great player. He's a better person. And I think that matters. I mean, he, 
And, and you know, I, I joke around when we do the Monday show and I rib him and tease him and everything else. And, and that's all part of getting to know him. And the relationship started as writer and player and you saw it. Sure. I mean, and I had to work to develop a relationship with him and, and ultimately did because he understood that I do the work and he respected me and I respected him. And he was always, and you know this, John, he was great. He could always go over to his locker and pull him aside. There aren't a lot of guys that were like this. And, and you could pull him aside and say, hey, what do you think about this guy, that guy, this guy? And he'd tell you. And he'd say, no, he can play. He can't. He won't. He, he'll be a problem for me. And, and I think that's why we formed that relationship from a football standpoint. And, and it kind of grew out of that. Now, he had his moments where he wasn't exactly warm and fuzzy uh, at that locker. And, Frisco. And pranks on me and – you remember? Oh, remember yeah. They played pranks and put up the no print. He played along with all of it because he had to because they were a unit. And and, and look, I, that was all part of the fun for me, and it helped build the relationship with him. And it was good because he was so close with Mark Brunel. And, and you know, Mark Brunel early in his in his career had an issue with me for whatever reason. <laughs> and he'd be the first to tell you. Because you ripped and, him all the time. Well, I mean, he, he did. He, he got out of the pocket too soon. I still rip guys for that. But as that evolved, as he saw my relationship with Tony kind of come together, Mark kind of trusted me a little bit more, and that relationship grew. So um, I think, you know, Tony was the – as crazy as it sounds, as a rookie, and you know this, he was kind of the guy they looked to in that locker. He yeah. was a leader. He was one of their guys. And so I think he kind of led Brunel, and Brunel became what he became, and I think he led that whole locker room. And so that's kind of like our relationship, how it started, uh, and then it grew after he stopped playing football, and, and now we work together on Monday nights, and, and I love it. I mean, <laughs> I, I, it, it's so much fun to work with him, John, because you know this. He's, you, he takes it as much as he gives yeah. it. And that's the sign of a, of a guy who can – you know, like I take it. I give it as much as anybody. You know that, but I can take it. Like, I, I'll give you an example. I was in Vegas for the draft, and I'll tell this story. I told you before. And I'm walking through the airport, getting ready for my flight. By the way, my red eye had been delayed 24 hours, so I, I wasn't exactly the warm and fuzzy guy. And I look over, and I see this mountain of a man buying cookies yep. <laughs> at the counter. I go, it's Baselli. So I wander over to him. I go, you better not eat those or you want to be in shape for that Hall of Fame ceremony. <laughs> and he looked back, and he goes, ah, <laughs> He got busted. It's uh, and he had, by the way, he had about six of them in that bag. Of course he so. did. And he finished him before the flight started. Yeah, <laughs> it's it was, not- well, he was picking him before he even turned around. He was. <laughs> <laughs> that's why the relationship, right. John. That's why the relationship is what it is. And you know that you give it to him too. He can take it, and that's the that's the he takes it and it slides off him. He gives it right back to you and it slides off you. That tells you you have a good relationship. Something you said earlier, I think, is interesting uh, to people though. Not every NFL player you cover, uh, in fact, uh, strikingly few of them, frankly, love the game the way he did. You know, I've always found maybe out of 60 players in a locker room, you might find five or six who really watch it and really study it and really know about other teams. Um, he was certainly that guy from a very young age. Maybe even even as a rookie, he came in. He loved it, man. I mean, he, he uh, and that's why I always thought, uh, and uh, maybe this is more of an aside. I was in Indy when Tony had to stop playing, so I didn't really get to know him again for about ten more years. But I always thought that how cruel it was for a guy who really loved the sport 
even beyond finances, which it, it certainly cost Tony untold millions to have stopped playing. But I've got to know him a little bit later. It ripped him apart to not be able to be on the field because it was so much of who he was and he loved it so much. He, he did. He loved the game. And, and you mentioned, you know, how much he loved the game and how much he knew the game, John. I mean, it, you know, he, he knew the game. He knew other players and, uh, and other other what they could do and what they couldn't do. And, and I've told you this before because you worked with him and you knew him in Indy. Uh, Peyton Manning was the best at that. I mean, he, he knew every player in the league. It doesn't matter where he was, who he was. And Tony was right there with yeah. him. And, I mean, Tony was fantastic. At, uh, he could talk about guys on other teams and what they could do and what, why they would do this and what they should do and talked about when he had to play against the Blitzburg defense and what they needed to do. He always offered perspective on the game because he knew the game. And like you said, because he loved the game and, and there aren't many guys like that. It's surprising to a lot of fans to hear that, but that's not the way it is. I mean, there, and, and I think as we get, I'm going to sound like old man who walked eight miles through the snow to go to school. But as we get through more and more past those times, I think we're seeing less and less of that. There's still guys. Don't get me wrong. There's still a lot of guys, but with social media being what it is and everything else, I think their focus gets away from it a little bit more the, the you know the drive and desire to be great is still there. I'm not ever going to take that away from guys because I think that's still there. But the the ability to talk about other players on other teams and dissect the league that's kind of gone away. And Tony was one of the best at it. There's such high point moments, and we were fortunate enough to be there for both of them. We were both there for Bruce Smith, and I can remember looking at each other in the second half and saying, "He's killing him," and it was obvious. Uh, the Derek's uh, the uh, the uh, Derek Thomas game when he shut out Derek Thomas a week after Derek had seven sacks. Um, what else stands out to you, Pete? I mean, any other games? Any other moments? At, as he goes into the hall, I know it's been a while, but we were fortunate to see them all. Yeah, I think you know the the Jason Taylor game stands out a little bit because he called him out. Remember, come on, get some, come and get some. And that was that was not like him. I mean, he was a feisty player, but. To put that, you know, out there because that, that was a Monday night game, yep. and and he put it out there for everybody to see. And I think that one stands out. Bruce Smith's the, the game of games when you talk about it. I mean, the guy was the defensive player of the year. He could not be blocked that season. Tony couldn't sleep that week. They were going to single him up in the first play of the game. He threw him to the ground. And he said, "Okay, here I go. It's me and him, and I can handle him." And he did. He dominated him. Now, Bruce Smith got a, a half a sack in that game when he kind of sliced inside on the guard. But Tony handled him in all the one-on-one situations. He blocked him in the run game. And, and that that's another thing that was always unfair to Tony because Dr. Z put that out there that Tony wasn't a good run blocker. Remember that? Yeah. It was, it was garbage. It was not true. He was a good run blocker. He was a great pass protector, one of the best I've ever seen with my own two eyes, uh, if not the best. Uh, but he was a good run blocker, too. And for, for Dr. Z to put that out there at that time, it kind of hurt him a little bit. Yeah. It wasn't right. So, uh, But that game was the – I mean, Bruce Smith just got thrown around. Uh, you know, uh, defensive player of the year. Yeah. He, he he just dominated him from start to finish. And, and Tony wasn't sure if he could. Right. And one play in, he knew he could. And that's that tells you uh, about him as a player. Yeah, it's incredibly rare to – you know, for an offensive lineman to have, have an opportunity like that, uh, it was storybook. And sort of uh, to speak to what you just said, uh, I've already spoken to Leon Searcy for this series, and he said the same thing you did. It, 
uh, Leon sort of prided, him, prided himself, rightfully so, on being a tough run block and brawler. Uh, and Leon said today, you, you know, Tony was the same way. I mean, Tony had the reputation because he was a great pass blocker. Uh, maybe people think of him as uh, finesse. I don't know. I mean, I never thought of him that way. But maybe that's the perception. Tony Baselli was not finesse. Not at all, John. Not one bit. I mean, he just moved so effortlessly in pass protection that they kind of took that and ran with it. You know, you know it's funny. You mentioned we, we talk about the great games against, you know, Bruce Smith, the great games uh, against the great game against Jason Taylor, Derek Thomas, when he had what do you have seven sacks the two weeks before week before that week before yeah. and that legendary story is Phil Sims tells the story he looked at Coughlin he said how are you going to handle him in the production meeting and Coughlin said my guy and he did right he, he got nothing easily but too. I Pete. always remember the wars too and, and Tony will be the first one to tell you about the wars the Mike McCrary wars those are legendary and, and people don't remember those and they should because Mike McCrary was a great player doesn't ever get the due he deserves for being the player he was for those Ravens defenses. And Tony said he's the toughest guy he ever blocked. Before not Bruce it. Smith, not Derek Thomas, Mike McCrary, who was a tough, hard-nosed physical player. So those battles were always tough, nasty physical wars. And and they were fun to watch. And, and look, McCrary probably got some off of Tony, but – McCrary was a good player. Tony was a great player, and they both had that that tough nastiness about them. I'll tell you the thing that's striking to me. I keep reading these stats. Uh, I forget where it was that uh, Tony gave up X number of sacks, 18, 16, 17. I don't remember that many. I mean, he, he uh, it was always striking. I, I know he gave up two to, to uh, John Randall in, in the famous 50-14 to 14 game. But, you uh, remember that game, though. You remember that game. Oh, that, was that was Jonathan nuts. Quinn game, and yeah. it was a, they were dead. They were a disaster from the word get go. And Tony said he'd be the first one to tell you he he came into that game knowing they were going to get their butts beat because that was a good Vikings team. Yeah, he said it was one and game he didn't feel mentally night, ready. And, right, and he knew it. And he said he didn't play for it. He wasn't prepared to play. And they got beat. They got beat up. And John Randall to this day will say Tony won that good because he doesn't real it, that wasn't who he was. Right. Uh, that night, but he had a rough go. But plus, I like to joke around that Brunel ran into about twelve of those sacks. <laughs> well, an argument can be made. I'm kidding, Mark. I'm kidding, Mark. <laughs> what? Uh, and Pete always asks this because we worked together five or six years, and uh, you probably know as much about why players are good and bad uh, than any uh, reporter I've been around. What was it? A. What was striking to me, Pete, is how good he was quickly. He came out and he stonewalled uh, Sean Jones in their in the first game he ever played. He was never bad. He may have been a pro bowler his first year. He didn't make it. But um, what was it about him made him so good? Well, I think it was the technique as much as anything. I mean, he he came in looking like a pro. You know, that's we see all these offensive linemen come into the league and they don't know how yeah. to use their hands and, and kind of in unison with their feet. And Tony knew how to do that from the word get-go. And Pete, and, and I maybe remember, never realized I got spoiled. I got spoiled in Andy covering Peyton Manning. Because I covered Tony, I didn't realize, and it was my first NFL game, I covered Tony Baselli five games in, I never realized how hard it is what you're talking about and how rare it is until after I stopped covering him. You don't see that right out of the gate. You really don't. And and you know what? It, it's 
he played at USC, which had the reputation for putting out offensive linemen after offensive linemen. And remember, Anthony Munoz, who I think to this day um, is the best I've ever seen. And, and Tony's right there with him, but he's the best I've ever seen play the position of left tackle. And I saw Anthony Munoz play left tackle in college when I was at Arizona State. And Keith Van Horn was the right tackle. And then after after Munoz, there was Pat Harlow, who was a first-round pick. And, and kind of he was ahead of Tony and played before Tony. And, and so there was always the tradition at USC, and they were taught the right way. It kind of trickled down. It was, it was really – and if I'm not mistaken, Hudson Houck might have been the offensive line coach at USC way back then. The whole offensive – Roy Foster and, yeah. and, and Brad Buddy and all these guys, they were all first-round picks yeah. all the way through. They always were. Ron Yeary. And Ron Ye- well, way <laughs> back when. But, I mean, you're Little talking four. about greatness at a school for offensive linemen, and Tony kind of learned to play the position there. And when he came to the NFL, his technique was sound. His feet were outstanding. He moved – like a basketball player. And you always want that at a left tackle position. You want a guy who can move like a basketball player. And he was a basketball player at one point. Remember, he's a guy who grew into his body. And a lot of times the guys who grow into their body, they're better athletes than a guy who's just a big clunk, you know, big, big guy who's been big his entire life. An athlete. He was an athlete who grew into his body. And that's why his feet and his hands were so outstanding. How, uh, I mean, it sounds silly because he was great. He had to retire so young. He could have played four, five, six more years at a high level. Had he played all 12, 13, 14 of what he probably should have played, would he be remembered Munoz, Walter Jones? I think he'd be in that bunch. To me, Walter Jones is the best I saw. But to me, Tony would be in that, I guess, the Rushmore conversation had he played it out. Oh, he would be in the Rushmore conversation. Uh, the only thing that holds him back from being in the Rushmore conversation is length of career. Right, clear. Um, like I said, Munoz to me is the best. Uh, Walter Jones is right there, and I think it's interesting that Walter Jones emulated Tony. Yeah. That's what he 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 says that he learned to play watching Tony, and so yeah, he would be in the conversation. It's sad what they did to his shoulders. I mean, my gosh. I mean, you know, that's a whole nother aside, but. I mean, the guy's career was ruined by bad shoulder surgeries, and, and you hate to see that because he was in the prime. Right. That was the prime of his career. You're talking about an offensive lineman who could have played, like you said, another, what, seven, eight years and, and probably played at a really high level for another five at least. Oh, and, and that's the tragedy of his career. Look, if that were the case, if he had played his entire career healthy – We'd have been having this podcast and this conversation a long time ago. Yeah, we'd have been having it five years after he after he retired. I thought, Pete, uh, one of the most amazing things I saw, I think you covered a lot of this season and then and you were gone by the end. He tears his ACL in January of, of uh, 90, or in January of 2000, at the end of the 99 season. Comes back uh, in, a, in a time where it wasn't guaranteed that you came back immediately. You came back from ACLs. I'm not over-exaggerating it. But he, he started every game, has told me since that for the first four or five weeks, he was playing on one leg. Gets back, gets right, makes the Pro Bowl the year after ACL surgery. And that was really his last Pro Bowl season. He had the shoulder stuff. He was out, I think, by week six or week seven of the next year. But that season, to me, not as dominant, but showed you, even on one leg, the guy was a pro bowler. And he had to play, because didn't Leon tear his ACL in the training camp? Then? I don't know if it was an ACL, right? but uh, Leon was done. It was interesting. 
in my conversation with Leon this morning, I reminded him the Jaguars' great years started in 96 when those two started playing together and ended in 99 in Leon's last game. When those two weren't the right and left tackle, those were the glory years of the franchise. When did Leon, when did Leon hurt his Training knee? camp 2000. That was, right, so he was done. That was the end of him. Yeah, he was done. So, and, and, and You know what would have been the saddest thing of all of that? Is had they gone to the Super Bowl in '99, Tony wouldn't have been a part of it, right? Yeah, remember because they played that whole playoff run without him. People don't realize that yeah, he, he was hurt uh, regular season finale in '99 against the Bengals, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, and he didn't he didn't play the playoff series in, in the playoff games, and and that's the amazing thing about how good they were. They didn't even have their best player on the right. field. He wasn't even on the field, and uh, and that would have been in hindsight had they because I still think if they had beat the Titans, they would have beat the Rams. And if they'd done that, he would have been a part of it. He would have right. been sitting out watching his team win a Super Bowl, and you know that would have aided him because we would have had fodder for years and years. Oh, and yeah. They didn't need you. Hall of Famer, they didn't need you. Wasn't ya. that good? How, and uh, speak to this, Pete, and I'll let you go after this, but I always maintain what a remarkable thing it was and is and how cool it is in this sense. They clearly drafted him to be the cornerstone. He was the first pick in franchise history, number two overall, left tackle, cornerstone position. Then, you know, we've all seen in the draft, that's all well and good. Doesn't always work out. He lived up to it and more than live up to it. The rarity is, to me, when I think of those early Jaguars teams, I think of Tony Baselli and Tom Coughlin. No knock on Fred, no knock on Jimmy, no knock on Mark. I love those guys. But Baselli is the guy, when I looked back, Maybe it's because he was the first pick. And then to eventually be the first player in franchise history in the Hall of Fame, uh, it, I, it usually doesn't work out that way, does it? No, it doesn't. So, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's great for the city because I remember when he was picked and the passion for when he actually was the first player. You remember leading into it, it wasn't great fanfare. But when he was picked, everybody loved him. He was Tony. They loved the Sully. He was their guy. He was their first He's the first guy. And to see him have the career he had, and then despite the fact that got cut short, still get into the Hall of Fame as the first player in team history to do it, that's special. And, and it will be a special, it's going to be a special um, ceremony. It, I know the city of Jacksonville is going to go nuts for it. Um, and, you know, I, look, I, I went to the owners' meetings this year, and guys I hadn't seen in a couple years because of COVID, writers and stuff came up to me, they go, Leave us alone. You got him in. Leave me alone. You got him in. I go, whoa, 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 whoa. It's Fred Taylor time yeah. now, guys. It's Fred Taylor time. And, hey, hey, so, and you know what? It's, Very similar arguments can be made there, Pete. Yeah, and I they're mean, going to get made. Yeah. And, and, and I think we'll be doing a podcast for Fred Taylor soon, talking about his Hall of Fame uh, career, because he's going to get in. He'll eventually get in. He was a great player. And Tony's the first. He should be the first. And I think it's going to be a great summer to watch him get inducted into the Hall of Fame. Will you Can't be able wait. to make it? I'll be there. Okay, good. I will be there. Good. Look, it's going to be Tony Baselli and Leroy Butler, who I've known for years, yep, both going right. in in the same summer. I will be there. Fantastic. Well, Pete, it, I, I could go on forever. I remember we were sitting next to each other when uh, Tony and Angie walked in, and Angie was wearing a red outfit with uh, Miss California hair, and I – I can distinctly remember seeing that moment and thinking this is the first day of the rest of those kids' lives and just wondering how it would work. I mean, we're sitting in that meeting room down the end of the hall where we covered the draft, 
and uh, so many memories like that flashback. You know, you you forgot you forgot one memory that I will never let him forget. By the way, what's that? Sending the private plane to get him in Stevens Point because he had a boo boo on his knee. Remember, career ending boo boo, wasn't it? <laughs> you remember? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And it's a. I think that was the one time he ever blew me off for an interview because I caught him coming out of. Uh, I'd gotten sent over to wherever they were doing his X-rays. He was like, "I can't talk right now, Osher." Like he apologized to me but, later because it was all coffee. But everybody else who got injured and had to go back to Jacksonville got coach. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So, well, Pete, I feel like I should congratulate you for getting him in. I know what a big part of it, we, uh, big part of the process you were. But I know it comes across in this podcast uh, as much as we tease Tony. The relationship you guys have had over the years, I know there's a lot of pride, and I know you're happy about this. I can't thank you enough for joining us and, and uh, sharing your thoughts, and uh, I'm looking forward to celebrating in camp. Yeah, I can't wait. Looking forward to it, Johnny O. Take care.